There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I am with thee. Peace be still in all of life's ebb and flow. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing. He's me singing as I go. First Timothy chapter six, verse two, B. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to speak. So speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me just kind of remind you what chapter 5 was all about. We ended chapter 5, even though chapter 6 kind of, you know, I don't know why it starts where it does, but um, we ended chapter 5 and started in chapter 6, because but the theme was the same. The theme was about honor. Honor, right? Paul was teaching Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus, how the body is to interact with one another, how you you interact with older men, how you interact with older women, how you interact with younger women and younger men. And what does he say? Fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, right? As the family of God, show honor to one another. And then individual families are to show honor to their own mother and father, to make some return to them. And then the church in particular is to honor those who are truly widows, to to, to take care of them, to support them, to love them as well. And then we found out about elders. Can't forget the pastors. How do you treat them? He says to honor them, uh, especially those who labor in uh, teaching and preaching, to to give them double honor. Uh, And then finally... Uh, in the beginning of chapter 6, we saw this idea of bond servants, slaves, showing honor to their masters. Uh, and so, transitioning into this next piece of the puzzle, we ask, why is Paul writing all of this stuff? Right? I think the expectation is that Timothy isn't just going to read it, but he's going to relay it. Right? Right? This isn't just to be written, this is to be preached, uh, which is why we do what we do, right? 
but that was Paul's expectation. Timothy is going to have to take this stuff and give it to the congregation. And believe it or not, teaching the Bible isn't exactly the cool thing to do, right? Who would have guessed it? Uh, I think Paul is warning Timothy in the first half of chapter 6 that some people aren't going to like it. And the reason that some people in Ephesus were going to act the fool over Bible teaching is the same reason that people act the fool in church today. Because the Word of God has the property of exposing sin. Jesus said in, in John 3, 19 through 20, who is the Word of God, right? He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people have loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So here's what's cool about preaching the Word of God. Uh, let's start off strong here to wake everybody up. Imagine you have a roach infestation. Okay? Most people don't really know they have a roast infestation at first. They hide in the nooks and crannies. They, they, they hide in the cabinets and, you know, they get in your cereal boxes and wherever else, you know, they can, they can hide, right? Usually when you do finally find out, though, that you've got a roach problem is when you first go into the house and you cut the lights on. What do they do? They scatter. They run away. Why do they do that? The light. They don't like the light. They don't want to be found. And so they run and they hide. Now, Paul is warning Timothy here this morning about the roaches in Ephesus. They are going to scatter. They might make a mess. They, they might cause chaos and confusion. They're going to stir up other people towards friction and division. They're going to fall into temptation. They're going to cause controversy. They're going to seek what's best for themselves. And in doing so, they will pierce themselves with many pangs. But let me say something else about this passage before we just jump in. There is an amazing truth, an amazing teaching, an amazing doctrine in here that I believe if we listen to and obey, we, we will unlock true Christian growth unlike anything else, unlike ever before. Do you want to love the Bible? Do you want to read the Bible? Do you want to love Jesus and live by the power of his gospel? Do you want to obey God and start actually doing something about your sin? Do you want to pray like you've never prayed before? Do you want to not just go to church? Do you want to love the church? Do you want to be the church? Do you want to truly know God and worship God with all you've got? Paul says, here's the secret ingredient. You have to be content. You have to be content. It's kind of, what, really? Is, is that the secret ingredient? It's kind of like, you know, you find out the secret ingre ingredient to your favorite chili recipe is ketchup. That's, that's it? That's the secret? That's the key? Contentment? Absolutely. The Word of God is going to expose two of the biggest obstacles that we face towards being content. Those two big obstacles that Paul brings up are conceit and the craving of riches. Conceit and the craving of riches. So I've got three audiences that Timothy is going to be preaching to and that I still preach to today and that every pre preacher preaches to. The conceited, the content, and the craving. 
the conceited, the content, and the craving. So let's look first at the conceited. Verse 2, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, again, this isn't just a letter to a pen pal. This is the word of God. It is to be obeyed. It is to be taught. So, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. That means that these words are part of the biblical canon, meaning that they demand obedience. When you read these, you can't just read them for information, right? We read this and we decide to do this. They demand obedience. So Timothy shouldn't be afraid to teach it. It demands its own obedience. But Timothy is probably going to be afraid to teach it sometimes. Because in Ephesus, there were some teaching different doctrine. Now this isn't new information, right? We already knew that. Chapter 1 Paul says, I urged you as I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God, that is, by faith. Joey preached in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says, in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require absence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So what was the different doctrine in Ephesus? I don't know that we can boil it down uh, or give it a $10 word, uh, but it had something to do with speculations, random wanderings, something to do with the teachings of demons and deceitful spirits, something to do with forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from certain foods. Paul says a lot of things about what they were doing and what what this different doctrine was. But here, in chapter 6, he narrows down the the roots uh, of what their false teaching was. It doesn't agree with the sound words of Jesus, which brings forth godliness, and it comes from a place of conceit. That's the heart of the matter. That's really what's going on. The sound words, that Greek word literally means healthy, nourishment, provides good sustenance for your body. The sound words of Jesus are are good, life-giving words. They're the words of eternal life, but the words that they are giving are not sound. They are unhealthy. They kill. They ruin the body. They ruin the mind. So we know that the word of God is good. It's healthy. Why would these people not want to cling to it? What would keep people from possibly clinging to the good word of God? Paul says conceit. Now the phrase puffed up with conceit is actually just one word. It's pretty cool. Uh, I think you actually like this. The Greek word is typhu, and it means smoke. So if you ever heard the phrase blowing smoke, these folks were literally blowing smoke. It is to have a mind that is smoky. 
right? Uh, in a more figurative sense, to be, to be puffed up with smoke to the point that you can't see. There's fog. You're becoming morally blind. It is to be haughty, conceited, foolish, arrogant, to think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's to think you're absolutely right when you're absolutely wrong. And that's why Paul says they are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. Naturally, if your head is full of smoke, you're not going to be able to understand the truth of the Word of God. Instead, you will fight it until your ego is satisfied, which may take a long time and a lot of effort. Consider the consequences that he lists here of a puffed-up mind, a smoke blower. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. Long story short, these people like to start stuff. If they can find a way to disagree, they're going to disagree. If Timothy says, treat older men as fathers, they respond, well, they ain't my father. Timothy says, widows need to be honored. They say, no, they don't. Timothy says, elders and deacons need to be dignified and above reproach. They say, no, not really. Timothy says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. They say, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Prove it. So this is called controversy because it's more than just a contradictory attitude. It's more than just conceit. It is an addiction to drama. It is an addiction to stirring up the pot, right? We all know someone who's addicted to drama. You might be that person. Usually we just kind of brush it off. We don't want to add fuel to the fire. We just kind of lay low, not really respond. But Paul says that this is a sin that comes from the root of conceit. And we need to recognize how deadly it is to the church of God. It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people. And meanwhile, we just read Wednesday night that the church is to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. These words are not to be tolerated in the body of Christ. They're to be purged. They're to be gotten rid of. But if it was happening in Ephesus, it's likely it's going to happen in Spindale. And here's why it still happens today. Because as long as there's a crowd to fuel the fire, the fire will burn on. People who are depraved in mind, he says. People who are deprived of the truth. People who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. They love it. They throw fuel on the fire. They say, somebody's starting something. Let me, let me get in on this. All right? They've become absolutely corrupt in their thinking. They've become separate from and destitute from any kind of truth. That's what depraved and deprived means. The worst part of it all is that they're using godliness for a sense of personal gain, a personal benefit. Do you see the sad decline of those who embrace a conceited life? You end up alone, hurting everyone around you, and you're never fully satisfied. 
Now, this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to say, well, not you guys. Not, that's them, but not Main Street, right? You guys, I love y'all. Y'all are great. We got no conceited people here. No people like to start stuff here, right? That ain't my job. My job is to turn the light on. The light shows on us, and the roaches scatter. Are you conceited? Are you conceited? Do you think about anyone but yourself? When you're having conversations with others, do you find that you are doing almost all the talking? Do you lie awake at night thinking about how you can get a one-up on other people? Do you spend hours crafting an argument just so you can be right? What is your gut instinct when someone suggests change? Do you shut it down immediately because your way is right and their way is obviously wrong? Surely that don't happen in church, right? Why do you study the Bible? So that you can know more and show others how much you know? Why do you come to church? So that people can see you? So that you can check off some kind of spiritual box you've made for yourself to increase your pride and self-assurance? Why do you not come to church? Because the pews are full of hypocrites? Because you have found a way to do it on your own? A way that others clearly haven't figured out yet? C.S. Lewis wrote a series of essays on Christian division and worship wars. This is a, can you believe worship wars were going on? This, this ain't a new thing, right? This is what he wrote in, in one of his essays. He says, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology and wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which really were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Family, conceit is deadly, but there is a cure. There is a cure. The cure is contentment. Who are the content among us? Let's read verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Timothy, those who will listen to the words you teach are those who believe with everything in them that godliness with contentment is great gain. Those are the people that are going to listen. Those are the people that are going to have their Bibles open, ready to eat it when you open it. The true gain of living a godly life is enjoying the fruit of contentment. Now, contentment is an interesting Greek word in itself. It, it literally means to be self-sufficient. It's a combination of two words, self and sufficient. So literally, self-sufficient is what it means. It, it means that a genuine Christian doesn't have to go out about searching for more and more, starting controversies, arguing, causing friction to get what they want and finally be satisfied. Genuine Christians 
already have something within them that gives them a sense of satisfaction. What, what could possibly be inside the Christian that makes them joyful people and content people? Could it be the Holy Spirit of God? Could it be us abiding in Christ and He in us? Could it be the blessed gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that has made us new and alive and changed forever? Could it be the one that's made us born again, not of the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of light? What could it be that creates this self-sufficient contentment in us? But God and God alone, he is our joy. He is our satisfaction. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that this is the only other time that, that this, this exact word is used in the text again. Paul uses it to speak of God's grace. It is sufficient for all things at all times. It is content in all things at all times. That means we don't have to have more than what we've already been given. He has provided richly for us. And let me tell you that the fruit of a content life is sweet. What would it look like if we were content with food and clothing and nothing more? I think conceit would vanish. I think envy and strife would disappear. I think constant friction among church members would finally die. I, I think the word of God would be cherished and obeyed. I think the Holy Spirit would no longer be grieved. I think church unity would flourish and reach new heights of love and generosity. I think we would care more about the Great Commission than we've ever cared about it before. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern, tells a great story about when he went to this small country, a little tribe of unreached people. Uh, it was a third world place. It was very low income, poverty stricken, a hard place to live. But he made sure on his trip to pack in his suitcase a box fan and plenty of blankets. So he is sleeping in a place that fortunately had electricity with the locals and some of them also on the missionary team. And he unzips his suitcase to get out his box fan because it's nighttime, right? He plugs it in, he's got his box fan, and then he cuddles up with his blanket. And they say, are you cold? Turn the fan off. He says, no, but I need the fan to sleep. Oh, well, if you're hot, you can take the blanket off, and then you won't need the fan. They, they couldn't wrap this around their minds that he needed a box fan to sleep, right? That made no sense to them. And we're box fan users, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit. Um, but uh, th th this, this shows just how much we need and, and truly um, what it takes to satisfy us. What if all we had was food, clothing, and the gospel? What if that's all we had? I think we'd be the healthiest church in the United States of America. Right? Don't you love Paul's simple logic? What did you have with you when you got here? What you taking with you when you leave? Nothing. <laughs> if there was ever a time for me to tell you that hearses don't tow U-Hauls, it's now. You don't get to take anything with you. Don't get too attached to this stuff. It ain't coming. And did you know this is a direct quote from Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5? Paul's been reading Solomon. And Solomon said these words not out of joy, not out of satisfaction, but out of gloom and despair. He said, this is Solomon chapter 5, verse 13, Ecclesiastes. 
There is a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he and his and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. That's good Bible reading. <laughs> Solomon said this out of a sense of gloom and despair. But the gospel changed the same thing he wrote, this proverb, into a sense of joy and peace and happiness and an unknown contentment, something Solomon could not wrap his mind around. Paul knew the power of the gospel. The gospel changes a gloomy, sad proverb into a joyful declaration that we have Christ and need nothing else, right? There, there, listen, there is something going on in your life today that you are not content about. Every single one of us. You don't like it. You wish it was different. You are fighting it. You are pushing against it. You are resisting it at all costs. It might be something to do with your job, something to do with your family, something to do with your home, something to do with friendships. It might even have something to do with this church. But regardless of what it is, 1 Timothy 6.8 is not telling you to just get over it and be more thankful. I think that's how we want to interpret this, right? Get over it and be more thankful. We don't have a God who says, get over it and be more thankful. We have a God who supplies our, need, our needs richly. We have a God who applies the gospel to our areas of dissatisfaction, right? True Christian contentment takes a hard look at that hole in your heart that's causing the discontentment and puts God in that hole, in other words, it says God is going to take care of me. God may not change the circumstance, the thing you don't like, or directly fix the thing that's broken, but he will give of himself because he is where our true joy lies. He is where our true satisfaction lies. This has less to do with being thankful for things you don't like and more to do with being thankful to God who provides and gives joy in the midst of these sorrows. He reminds us how temporary life is. And pretty soon, we're going out just like we came in, with nothing. This allows us to loosen our grip of material things so that when it's time to close our eyes and go home, we're not grabbing on so tight. But we're saying we have Christ. We have all we need. We literally have it all. But contentment doesn't only crush conceit. As you can see, where Paul is going, it also crushes the craving for riches. So let's consider the craving for riches in this last couple of verses. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So if it's not... Conceit, Paul says, it's the love of money. It is the craving of riches. He describes them as those who desire 
to be rich. Well, how is the desire for riches going to keep people from hearing the Bible when it's being taught? How is that going to clog their ears, right? You remember that conceitedness is being foggy-headed, right? Blowing smoke. Well, the desire for riches is different. It's less about understanding and more about achieving. Conceitedness says, look how much I have in my head. The craving for riches says, look how much I have in my hands. And it's by this craving that many have fallen. Now, let me go ahead and stress the obvious question, is money bad? Is trying to get a raise at work or changing careers, almost 100% based on income, a bad thing? Is it wrong to accumulate personal wealth? Is it wrong to get a second job? I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I don't think that's what he's saying. But there are some indicators for when sin has come into the play. The two indicators are love and craving. Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of, a root of all kinds of evils. You might imagine, similar to a tree in the, the, the garden, uh, but a, a tree solely based of evil. A big tree with winding branches full of evil deeds. And its roots are thousands of them, and they dig deep into the ground. Paul says one of those roots that spring forward the life of evil doing is the root that loves money. The root that loves money. It creates all kinds of evil deeds. It makes us do evil things. And some of you are probably like, whew, thank goodness I don't love money. Right? That sounds rough. Glad it's not me, right? But you'll notice that desire plays a big part in this too. Paul uses the word craving in verse 10. The only other time he uses this word is in chapter 3 about those men who aspire, who crave the office of overseer and aspire to a noble task. It is stretching out towards something, a strong inclination to attain, to reach, to long for, to be eagerly searching for, to have an unquenchable hunger for something. Now, it's bad enough that these people can't hear and obey the word of God, but Paul shows other consequences of their craving. They fall. They tumble down the stairs into a big mess. Now, the conceited go about starting things because of their discontentment. Those who crave riches literally walk off a cliff like they never saw it coming. They had no idea it was there. They, you know, and I think this, this says something about how subtle this is in our lives, this craving for riches, that it, Paul uses the word fall to describe what happens. It leads us into temptation. That temptation brings about other senseless and harmful desires, and those desires plunge us into ruin and destruction. The biggest fear for those who crave riches is bankruptcy. And yet Paul makes it clear that even if they become multimillionaires, they will indeed become spiritually bankrupt if they love money. The final fall of those who desire riches, he says, is wandering away from the faith itself wandering away from the gospel, which is their only true satisfaction. And they pierce themselves with many pangs. Pangs is just a fancy word for sorrows. They bring sorrows upon their own head for their actions. Doesn't this seem personal for Paul? 
Whatever happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander in chapter 1 who fell away from the faith? Family, I, I don't want any of you to end up like this, pierced with many pangs. Believe it or not, your relationship with money and personal wealth has the power to wreak havoc on your faith. For one day, you may be simply putting away a few extra dollars in the bank or applying for another credit card. And in the next day, you are tumbling down a cliff away from the riches of Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself that it is incredibly hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me come into you another way to live. The way of a man named John Wesley, a Methodist pastor in the 18th century. He was limited, or at first limited in his expenses, but was determined to give whatever extra he had to the poor, to give his money away, those that he did not need. So one year, his income was... 30 pounds, and his living expenses were 28 pounds. So that left him two pounds to give away. And so he gave away two pounds as soon as he got the 30. The next year, his income doubled, but he continued to live on 28 pounds, even though he had 60, leaving him 32 pounds to give away to the poor. For the next two years, his income continued to increase so that in the fourth year, he was able to give away 92 pounds to the poor. Now, nobody knows what pounds is because we're Americans, right? Amen. Uh, but if we were to put this in 2020 in American dollars, this would be like John Wesley making about $160,000 a year but living on $20,000 a year. Wesley was a firm believer that even though a Christian's income might go up, it's not the standard of living that changes, but the standard of giving. He taught that Christians shouldn't just tithe, they should give away as much as they possibly can. He lived his entire life like this, somehow also starting a Christian school, somehow also marrying a widow with four children of her own, and never went without. He was so convinced that this true treasure was in heaven that as soon as money came into his hands, it just as quickly left his hands. When he died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins found in his pockets and dresser drawers. Most of the 30,000 pounds that he'd made in his lifetime had been given away. Do you know what motivated Wesley more than anything else? I think it was 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Don't you love that? Christ left the riches of heaven to enter the squalor of earth. Even birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He lived as a refugee, a sojourner, wandering about, preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven, calling men to repent and believe and have the riches of God 
bestowed to their name. Not once did he blow smoke. Not once did he crave riches. And yet he received what we deserved. The content say that we deserve more and more and more and more. Or I'm sorry, the conceited believe we deserve more and more and more and more. Those who crave riches deserve more and more and more and more and more. But praise be to God that we have not received what we actually deserved. Christ has received what we deserved. By his poverty, literally being stricken of life itself, we have abundant life forevermore in the rich gospel of Jesus Christ and have promised many mansions of gold waiting for us in heavenly places, in heavenly realms, not only a place to live, but my goodness, we will rule and reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Why would we cling to this stuff? Why would we start stuff for the sake of personal arrogance and pride? Why would we grab so tightly to these things that we can't take with us? Here's the key for unlocking your Christian growth. Learn contentment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have him, so we have it all. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.